All right, so tonight we will carry on with Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, and we're going to cover tonight paragraphs 2 through 4. Uh, I know that you guys covered uh, chapter or chapter 7, paragraph 2 last week with Mr. Berenger, uh, but it's so intricately connected with paragraph 3 that we're going to do uh, a little bit of review just to be uh, on the same page. But before we get to that, by the way, this is on page 924 if you're using the Trinity Psalter hymnal uh, for the confession. Otherwise, if you have just the regular gray copy, it's chapter 7. A couple of review things. Can anybody tell me, from all the way back in chapter 7, paragraph 1, why is it that a covenant is necessary? Why was it necessary that God make covenant with us? We spent a lot of time on this about two weeks ago. And maybe a cursory glance of chapter 7, paragraph 1 might, might help. It, it's our only way to relate with God. Close. We already have a relationship with God by virtue of the fact that he is our creator and we are his creatures. But that creator-creature relationship has obligations on one end, that is, we have obligations to God, right? Uh, A.A. Hodge put it this way, he said, the very act of creation brings the creature under the obligation to the creator. But... God has no obligations to us because he is the creator. We are the creatures. Now, what the, what the covenant does is God is obligating himself to us. That's what the confession is getting at in chapter 7, paragraph 1. Although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him, that is God, as the creator, yet they could never have any fruition, that is, never have any concept, any idea, any realization of him as their blessedness and reward, except or but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. The covenant relationship is so that God can uh, obligate himself to us, that he might bless us. You see, God's purpose in making mankind was not that we would be objects of some dispassionate, distant rule on his part, but rather he made us that he might bless us. That's also the Bible's language regarding our creation. We see this in the very beginning of scripture, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, uh, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And it goes on from there. But the point is, That God, even from the very beginning, even from the very first command that he gives mankind, that command is described as a blessing. God made us so that 
he might bless us. Even in the initial covenant of works that you guys talked about last week, the design is so that he might formally obligate himself to us to bless us. And he gives us assurance of that obligation through the covenant. Gives us assurance that so far as these parameters are met, the blessing will follow. That's the idea. We tend to think in our minds, uh, covenant of works, bad. Covenant of grace, good. Covenant of works is good. The problem with the covenant of works is not the covenant of works. It's us. Covenant of works is bad news for us because we're bad and we're not able to keep it. But the covenant relationship uh, is designed in and of itself to give us um, assurance that God will be our God and that we will be his people. And it defines the relationship. Uh, a, a good illustration of this is the marriage covenant, right? Before I went through the, the, the marriage ceremony with, with Mrs. Early, I intended to love her and provide for her and do all of the things that I vowed to do. But she is now much more strongly assured that I actually intend to do those things because it's been publicly declared and solemnized in a covenant. She's got witnesses that said, you said you were going to do X, Y, Z, right? There's a, there's a formalization to it that is designed to provide assurance. And so the first covenant that God makes with man is the covenant of works. And you guys uh, covered that last week with Mr. Berenger, but I'll just read that section of the confession real quick. Um, here we go. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect personal obedience. Now again, the, 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 the design of the covenant of works is God wants to bless his people with life everlasting so far as they keep the commands. The problem, as we said earlier, is not that the covenant of works was flawed, but that Adam failed to keep it on our behalf. Now, there is some manner of debate over whether or not the covenant of works is a legitimate biblical teaching. I don't know if Mr. Berenger got into this last week or not, uh, but it kind of, it, the, the debate centers on this. The word covenant does not appear in the opening chapters of Genesis. It's not there. The Hebrew word berit, it's not there. However, we do not do our theology at the word level, but we do it at the concept level, as one of my seminary professors would say. You can talk about something without using the specific word, and all of the essential elements of a covenant are there. There are parties involved, both God and man. There are prescriptions. There's something that is to be done. That is, man is told to take dominion. There are prohibitions, things not to be done. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are punishments threatened should, that, should you do what you ought not to be done, namely death. And there are promises, eschatological life. All of those elements are there. Further, Adam is treated as a covenant head in the New Testament. Would somebody please read 1 Corinthians 15, 22? 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The other go-to passage for this would be Romans 5, but I feel like we did that relatively recently. Okay. 
What's the chapter number? 1522. Would you like me to do that? That would be great, Mr. Johnson. <clears throat> For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right. So we know that Christ is, is the covenant head of the covenant of grace. And what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 15 says, as this happened in Adam, so this happens in Christ. Basically making the parallel that we have a similar relationship to Adam as we do to Christ. You're either under Adam or you're under Christ. But either way, one of these men is has acted on your behalf, right? So the scripture treats Adam as a federal head. And then uh, last of all, uh, you don't have to flip there, but Hosea chapter six and verse seven refers to a covenant that God made with Adam. And the only place that could have happened is in Genesis chapters one, two, and three. And so the covenant of works uh, would remain intact, being called a covenant elsewhere in scripture. So that kind of settles it in my view. All of the elements of a covenant are there. We know Adam is some sort of covenant head, and the scripture elsewhere, Hosea chapter 6, refers to a covenant God made with Adam. And so, so now, uh, with, with that out of the way, we're going to spend the rest of our time working in chapter 7, paragraphs 3 and 4 of the Confession. And we're going to look at these uh, five things relatively quickly. First of all, we're going to look at the need for the second covenant, the need for the second covenant, Secondly, we'll look at the function of the covenant. Third, who is the head of this covenant? Fourth, what is the requirement of this second covenant? And fifth, what is the power that, that operates this, this second covenant? And we're, as, we, as we do a, a flyby of all of those things conceptually, I'll, I'll read the paragraphs from the confession, but we're really going to be doing uh, most of our heavy lifting in Galatians chapter 3. So if you want to go ahead and flip there in your Bible, we're going to look at each of these and I'll announce each heading as we're going under it for those of you that are taking notes. First of all, there is uh, the need for the second covenant. Actually, I'll read the paragraphs of the confession real quick and then we'll, we'll walk through Galatians 3. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 3. Man... By his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that covenant referring back to the covenant of works. So because of man's fall, uh, life was not able to be bestowed on him. The Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. What's he do in this second covenant? Wherein he, that is God, freely offereth unto sinners, that's you and me, what's he offer us? Life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed or bestowed or given or whatever else you want to put in there. So let's look at this, the need for the second covenant in Galatians chapter 3. Would somebody please be so kind as to read Galatians 3, 10 to 11. We're going to see the need for the second covenant in these verses. Mr. Leathers. Well, the line works of the law under the curse. For this one... 
Here's to be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Thank you, Mr. Leathers. So the need for the second covenant is, is in many ways uh, the most plain and obvious thing in the world. And it's also one of the greatest demonstrations of God's love for you and his desire to bless you as you'll, as you'll find. Uh, Galatians 3, 10 to 11 give us the reason for the second covenant is because we're under a curse, which is, I don't know if you're keeping track, the exact opposite of a blessing, right? So we're under a curse. Why? Because the first covenant head, Adam, failed. And you guys, anyone that's been raised in this church or a like-minded church is, is well acquainted with, with that concept. Our first federal head failed, and as a result, we are all cursed. That's what Paul is talking about. Uh, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. He's, he, Paul, in this passage, is acknowledging that we are, according to the law, cursed. However, that is not the conclusion of the matter in Paul's mind. He goes on in verse 11 and says that there is a way to be justified by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And, and that's what the confession is talking about where it says the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant commonly called the covenant of grace. Why is there a second covenant? Because God delighted to still bless us in spite of ourselves. Under the first covenant, we merited death. But the Lord made a second covenant that he might still bless us and give us life. That is why there's a second option. It's according to God's good pleasure. His desire to bless his people is often greater than our desire to be blessed. That may be hard to believe because we tend to think of ourselves as enjoying blessings. But God desires it more than we do. Uh, just yesterday, uh, Brooke came home from school and she had a cookie that was made uh, for St. Patrick's Day and it had special frosting and a special design and all this stuff. And uh, we made the deal with her. You, you, you finish dinner and you can have your, your special cookie as a, as a dessert treat. And she took one bite of it. And it was <clears throat> so delicious that what she wanted more than anything was to share that cookie with me. I'm going to confess, I don't really, I'm, I'm not a big sweets guy. I didn't really want the cookie. I wasn't really excited about this. But she was so enthralled to share this thing that she prized with me. She, she delighted in sharing more than I delighted in being shared with. Or all of your parents, I'm sure, can attest to this. Uh, no matter how much you guys liked Christmas or your birthday, and, and I love Christmas, no matter how excited you were to get your gifts, your parents were more excited to see you open them than you were to get them. And that's the same idea that I'm getting at here. God desires to bless his people even more than we desire to be blessed. And so even though we failed in the first covenant, he made a second one. That's God's purpose with us in the covenant of grace is that he might bless us with that life, the way to the tree of life that we lost in the first covenant. So that's uh, the, the necessity of it. Now let's look at the function of this second covenant and I'll read for us Galatians chapter 3 
verses 12 to 14. Again, we're going to see the function of the covenant here. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that comes from the book of Deuteronomy. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's me and you, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so what Paul shows us here is at least two things the covenant of grace is designed to do, and these are both also spelled out for you in the confession of faith. To use the confession's language, he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. To state that another way, the, the covenant of grace deals with our sins, that's part one, and then part two, it rewards us uh, in Christ Jesus. And we see this plainly in the text, where we find Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse. That is, he dealt with the curse. He took the curse upon himself. How does the text put it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, verse 13, by becoming a curse for us. He took on himself the sins that we uh, committed and, 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 and paid the penalty that was due for them. He took the punishment on himself, of course, you know, on the cross. That's why Paul brings in the passage from Deuteronomy that says, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So that's the first thing the covenant of grace does for us. It deals with our sin by transferring it to Christ on the cross. The second thing it does is it gives us the life and blessings that we lost in the fall. That's why he says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, there's that word, blessings, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This can be a little confusing, but, but follow me here. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a misnomer and a mistake that people often make with covenant theology, and it goes something like this. Covenant of works equals Old Testament or Old Covenant. Covenant of grace equals New Testament or New Covenant. That's a, a, a pretty default way that probably 9 out of 10 evangelicals think. It's actually not right. It's not, it's not quite that simple. Now, for charitable, it's easy to see how someone would get that idea. Not trying to pick on people that think that way. I, I can understand where that would come from, but that's not the confession's view, and it's not the Bible's view. It's not a reformed view. Uh, and we'll see this more next week when we talk in depth about how the covenant of grace is, is administered under uh, various administrations. I just want to be clear at this point to say that these are not synonyms. The Old Testament does contain the covenant of works, but not everything that is in the Old Testament is the covenant of works. Does that make sense? The, the Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bobink is helpful here. He says, the Old Covenant with Israel is the necessary preparation for the new covenant in Christ. Though the covenant is one, there are two dispensations. 
The shadow and the particularity of the letter became the substance, universality, and freedom of the spirit. Nothing in the Old Testament is lost in the, in the New, but everything is fulfilled and matured, has reached its full growth, and now, out of the temporary husk, produces the eternal core. And again, the idea is that the covenant of grace begins in the Old Testament and is brought forward and fully realized in Christ and the new, but it is in both. And I want to acknowledge that it would be easy to misread Paul uh, as far as this passage goes to say uh, the law of Moses doesn't work, but faith in Christ does. Because he says things like verse 12, the law is not of faith. That seems like Paul is setting these ideas and these testaments against each other. But that's an oversimplification, especially if you look at the very next part of the passage. To give a human example, brothers, this is verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say in two offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So he's saying the Old Testament law doesn't change the promise that God made to Abraham. And the promise that God made to Abraham is eschatological life. It's the Holy Spirit. And that's Paul's paradigm throughout. And then he says in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. What's being set, what's being set in contrast here is not the law versus the gospel. It's the law as a way to be right with God versus the gospel as a way to be right with God. What faith in Christ does is it does not disannul the law. The law shows us our need for faith. And then as we walk in faith, we live in accord with the law. They go together. Does that make sense? Is that clear? All right. With the time we have left, let's just uh, we'll push through the head of the covenant, the requirement of the covenant, and the power of the covenant. And this is all in uh, Galatians 3, 23 into the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, these should all be fairly straightforward to you guys, but, but we'll run through them anyway. Uh, the head of the covenant of works is Adam, obviously, and all who are born in him by ordinary generation. The head of the covenant of grace is and always has been Christ, and under him all who are born again by the Spirit. In Adam we are sons of the curse. But in Christ, we are made sons of God. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So then, in the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to us or credited to our account, and Adam's sin nature was transferred to us, so also Christ gives us righteousness and also a new character that grows in obedience and conformity to the law of God and produces the fruits of the Spirit that Paul will talk about later on in this very letter. The requirement of the covenant of grace is faith. The requirement of the covenant of grace is faith, but specifically, Spirit-wrought faith, the Holy Spirit gifting faith and, and, and working in our faith to conform us more and more to Christ. You see that in Galatians 
3.3, where Paul says that, uh, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? The idea is, the Spirit is the initiator. He gives the faith and then uses that faith to mature us more and more into Christ. So then the faith is not something that we worked up, but it's God who grants it to us and also calls us to pursue it. And what's the power of the covenant? What is it that makes all of this work? What is it that uh, atones for sin? What is it that opens the gates of life, that compels the Spirit to give us faith? It's the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And this is in chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. For what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It is the blood of Christ shed on the cross that actualizes all of this, that we might receive our inheritance of everlasting life. The covenant of grace then could be summarized uh, this way. God the Father, in his desire to bless his people, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God the Son agreed to purchase that redemption for us by taking to himself full humanity that he might act as our federal head and fulfill all of the obligations of the covenant of works. That is, obeying the law of God perfectly and also taking on him the curse of the covenant of works that we had merited. He kept it perfect, both ends. And then the sending of the Holy Spirit to work faith in us and apply all of those benefits that Christ purchased to us on the basis of Christ's work. And all of that, that we might reach the fullness of our inheritance that he purchased for us. And I'll just leave you with this. First uh, Peter Chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, sums it, sums it up well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he, the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's the power by which we have been born again to a living hope. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're guarded and kept in all of this by the Spirit. God desired to bless us, and we blew it in the covenant of works. So God was pleased to make a second covenant, the covenant of grace, wherein we can't lose it because he begins it, he continues it, and he ends it. And it's all of his grace. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for the great love with which you have loved us. We give thanks to you that though we were once strangers and aliens to your covenants of promise, you have been pleased by your spirit to draw us near. Lord, I know that this is not a way that we're all uh, used to thinking, and these are not all terms that we're used to considering, and we covered so much ground tonight. But Father, I pray that we would understand, if nothing else, that your covenant of grace assures us of your love for us, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that therefore you will continue your faithfulness to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to reflect 
on your desire that we would reach full maturity and that you would call us to pursue that according to your gracious promises to us. Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.